Well, good morning again. <laughs> Our first service. Uh, boy, we had a, uh, just a wonderful service. And um, we're so glad you joined us uh, to start off our Connect Conference 2020. Every year uh, we have a missions conference here at Grace, and each year the Lord gives us a, uh, a new theme, idea, and this year our theme is around connection. And uh, so we want to we do that. We want to connect, right? Because what we're seeing uh, in our culture is that uh, there's a lack of connection. There's this trend the last 10 or 20 years towards isolationism, towards living your lives in a bubble. And that's not how the Lord designed us to work as believers. The Lord designed us to function within the context of relationship, the context of connection. And so that's what we're praying for the next two weeks is to see people connected. Connected to God, first and foremost connected to our brothers and sisters, but also connected to ministries and missions organizations. There's so many wonderful ones out there that are doing the Lord's work, that are on the front line, seeing the Lord move. And if you're a believer and you're here today, uh, you have a role to play in that, whether it's giving, going, praying, serving. Uh, God has designed you to function as a believer, being connected. And so that's what we want to see happen. Uh, trust everybody got a brochure. If you didn't, uh, you can pick one up on the way out. Uh, the brochure has all the information in it about our conference over the next two weeks. So we're blessed today to have Josh McDowell with us, going to be kicking off our conference, uh, bringing a message that's going to challenge and inspire. Uh, and then next weekend, we have a lot of events that are talking about um, ministries and different organizations to where we're going to have opportunities for you guys to uh, mix and mingle and get to uh, know those organizations, how you might can get involved with them. We have uh, food trucks, concerts, uh, breakout sessions, all kind of stuff. And then the last weekend, we're going to have a, uh, we're gonna have a uh, uh, serve day where we're going to go out and partner with Christian Service Mission and uh, have a day where we kind of put some tangible application uh, towards what we've been learning over the course of the next two weeks. So uh, regarding that last day, I forgot to mention in the first service, and Luann's going to hurt me if I don't mention it this service. Uh, this is the last Sunday to sign up for T-shirts. If you want a T-shirt, make sure you get an envelope uh, off the uh, table in the back and fill it out with the shirt size you want. But T-shirt or no T-shirt, we want you to come out uh, and serve that day. Let me rephrase that. Our T-shirt or your T-shirt? We want you to come out and serve that day. Don't come without a shirt on. That'd be bad. So uh, some of you might want to do that, but don't do it. Come with a shirt on. So let me open us with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we, uh, well, we come to you again, Lord, and we just thank you. Uh, we thank you for uh, just, first off, the cross, the fact that you died for us, Lord. We wouldn't be here without that. And we thank you for the way you designed us, the way you designed the church to function and operate, Lord, where we all have a role to play. We all have... Uh, we all have such meaning and purpose because of the way you designed it, Lord. Uh, we, have, uh, we have significance because of you and the way you designed us, and we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that uh, you would just work through these next two weeks to make sure that uh, we just get every heart in here, Lord, burdened for the souls of men, to have that eternal vision like Jesus had, Lord. We're always looking uh, to eternity and to the things that matter the most. We pray that we would, uh, we would get connected, Lord, over the next two weeks. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, folks, it's that time of year. We've had our three days of winter. Our two days of spring are just around the corner. And I'm hoping for a great crop of watermelons for the summertime. Now, do you know that Psalm 150 says to praise Him 13 times? I like the kind of music that talks about my Lord and Savior Jesus, that talks about God's greatness. In those six verses in Psalm 150, it tells us to praise Him anywhere and everywhere. 
with instruments. It even talks about praising him with loud cymbals, with resounding cymbals. So I say that we get together March 7th, about 4.30, grab some grub, have some comradeship, trucks with food, missionaries, mission stuff, the MC. Let's praise and worship him together. Oh, you know, I don't know if I've said the right phrases or terminology talking with you about this, but hey, that's okay. Let's connect. Good morning, everyone. Let's all stand on our feet and praise the Lord in heaven. I want to read. Um, I read it last hour. I'll read it again. It bears re reading again. Romans chapter 5, Paul's writing about faith, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice and hope of the glory of God. And so these songs that we're focused on this morning are about that endless rejoicing because of the hope that we have in Christ. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul is writing about Abraham and the type of faith that he had, and he says that he was fully convinced of the promises of God. And so the question this morning is, are you, are you fully convinced of the promises of God in Christ Jesus? That Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he went to a grave and three days later he rose again forever and ever and ever victorious over death and sin. Amen? We believe that this morning and so we're gathered with purpose. We have a reason to gather and rejoice this morning. Let's sing together. Salvation, Jesus, for our sake, you died. 
stone was moved for good for the lamb had conquered death and the dead rose from their tombs and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who'd come to the father are restored and the church of christ was born continue to rejoice, right? It's an endless rejoicing because we know that our hope is true. This song is called The Stand, so we stand in awe.
what can I say? What can I do? Offer this heart, oh God, completely to you. I'll stand. So I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in all of the one who gave it all. I'll stand. My soul, Lord, to you surrendered all I am is yours. So I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in all of the one who gave it all. I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all. Josh McDowell. Allow me to attempt telling you his life story and over 50 years of ministry in the next 90 seconds. Josh did not grow up with a strong Christian faith. In fact, as a university student, Josh set out to disprove Christianity altogether. However, when faced with the evidence, he was convinced that not only was Christianity true, but that it was based on a relationship worth devoting his life to. This led to the birth of the Josh McDowell ministry. Since 1961, Josh has delivered more than 27,000 talks to over 25 million people in 125 countries. He is the author or co-author of 150 books, including More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict, recognized by World Magazine as one of the top 40 books of the 20th century. Over the years, Josh has consistently addressed hard topics, such as the issue of truth, reliability of scripture, moral integrity, and relationships. Today, Josh continues to write and speak to audiences across the globe. Despite his work, Josh will tell anyone that his greatest joys and pleasures come from his family. He and his wife, Dottie, have been married 45 years. They have four children and 10 grandchildren. Please welcome Josh McDowell. Something struck me over there when uh, the gentleman that came on and talked about scripture and praising God is one thing, since I work with young people, one thing I hear from parents all the time and young people is my parents say or parents say, well, your music is too loud, I don't like it. 
Well, take the book of Psalms and go through it. I did that. Every time it mentions music, almost 50% of the time, I think it's that high, it mentions loud music. Like one there says, praise him with resounding symbols. I mean, it breaks your eardrum. And one of the verses says, it's so loud, the walls should vibrate. That's godly music. And we say, it's too loud. I'd probably, the only father did this, every time my kids were adolescents, they'd get in the car, I'd have their music on so loud. They said, Dad, turn the music down. I'm probably the only dad where the kids say, Dad, turn the music down. <laughs> but it's amazing what's biblical and how uh, it can affect the way we say and do things. I've been given almost an impossible task this morning, which I enjoy, uh, is in 51 minutes, I'm going to go one minute over, 51 minutes, uh, to deal with connecting and missions and a challenge to youth and adults. To where the church is today, where culture is, to do that in 51 minutes is almost impossible. So I'm going to do part of it. One of the biggest motivations in my life after Christ is my wife and my children. Uh, I live for them. Uh, it motivates almost everything I do in life. And now I got four kids and 10 grandkids and have probably some more coming. Uh, one of my major talks over the years has been maximum sex and I think my kids took it seriously. <laughs> because I have a lot of grandkids. And uh, I write books, prepare talks and everything first with my kids in mind. When I thought of this talk here, my mind immediately went to First Chronicles 12.32. David was trying to unify the tribes of Israel to become more powerful. And when various tribes had come and give the allegiance of their armies to David, the word of God would often make a comment about him. Well, when it came to the sons of Issachar, God made this comment. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with a knowledge of what Israel should do. Wow. They understood the times. They knew culture. They knew what was going on. They knew how to do it. And they could know what to do because of it. So what I want to try my best is to give you my understanding of the times. As a Christian author, speaker, and I'm basically a researcher. And then apply it to connect, which is so easy to do. My daddy once said when he was sober, son, a problem well-defined is half solved. Ooh, that to me, that's profound. A problem well-defined is half solved. Most people, especially Christians, jump into the solution. Well, Jesus is the answer. They don't even talk about the problem. If you don't know how you got to where you are, how in the world do you know how to get to where you need to go? So what I want to do is look at how we got to where we are. Now, you're going to have to listen intellectually because of the time allotment. I've got to cut a lot of things out, but I think I'm doing it in a way that you will grasp it. But you're going to have to think with me because trust me, everything I say, one builds upon the other in a logical way. They understood the times in order to know what to do. Back in, I think it was 1994, the perfect storm hit the Northeast. Some of you remember that. It was called the Halloween storm. Hit on Halloween. Three huge storm fronts. One, a northeast came in. A big storm front was building off the Atlantic because it wasn't 
uh, cooling down. And another big storm started off the coast of A Africa, and they all hit the northeast of the United States at the same time. It was huge. Damaged ships sunk everything uh, at that time. Well, we've had a storm hit culture and hit the church. Mainly three big things. It has a lot of results that relates to connect. And so I want to walk you through it. Now, the first one, I'll use a big word and I'll explain it. We've had an epistemological shift. Epistemology, big words all have little meanings. Epistemology, we get the word epistle. Epistemology means the source and the nature. In other words, what is truth? Where does it come from? Between adults and youth now, we have a total transformation. Most adults do not understand how kids think and where they are today. Because why? They're in a totally different culture. Literally. They do not think the way you think. The problem is, kids know it, adults don't. Let me show you how we got there. We started out for hundreds of years with a paradigm of truth. What is truth? All truth resided in a personal creator God. All scientific truth, psychological, metaphysical truth, philosophic truth, theological truth, all reside in a personal creator God. And humanity, mankind, responded to it. And then onto the scene, in about 1350, came a movement called the Renaissance. Now the Renaissance said, we don't really need God. Now why? Each movement is different. Why? See how great humanity is. This is when they created um, images of the human body, statues, everything else, to glorify, to lift up humanity. And what the Renaissance did was bring that concept of a personal creator God about a quarter of the way down history and elevated humanity about a quarter of the way. It wouldn't have gone further than that if it wasn't followed several hundred years later by the Enlightenment. You see, all ideas have consequences. Stick that in your mind. We're seeing the consequences today, literally, of those ideas hundreds of years ago. And so Enlightenment came onto the scene, said, we don't need God. Now why? See how great humanity can think, can reason. We can reason through the sin problem. We can reason through uh, salvation and all. We don't need, probably the biggest graphic I've ever seen of this, and you've all seen it, it's an old salty sea captain with his wooden ship in a huge storm and Jesus standing there with his hand almost on his shoulder. And the caption always read, remember historically, Jesus is the master of my destiny. Now picture the Enlightenment did this. The Enlightenment took that hand off. And now it's pictured, I am the master of my destiny. That was the Enlightenment. And then the Enlightenment was, fo was followed by another, I believe, movement. Most people miss the metaphysical, philosophical, theological, cultural implications of the Industrial Revolution. It had an incredible impact. The Industrial Revolution came on the scene and said, we don't need God, we don't need a personal creator God, why? See how great humanity can create. This is when uh, patents just exploded in the world, huge machines, everything. And what the Industrial Revolution did, just like the other two, it brought God down another quarter of the way down history. Almost every single movement, thoughts can be traced back to one of those three movements today. For example, take tolerance. Tolerance is rated the number one value in the world. I don't think it's a value. I think tolerance is evil. I would never teach. Like most Christians, I wouldn't do what most Christians do. I would never teach my kids to be tolerant. It's evil. When you tolerate someone, you diminish their value. 
I taught my kids biblically to love one another. When you love someone, you enhance their value. Why do you say that about tolerance? Well, I had to write two books on it because people just weren't getting what tolerance was teaching. Whenever you hear the word tolerance in an educational, cultural, religious, or um, educational setting, it means this. That all, and it came out of these three movements. That the personal creator of God fell off the video screen of history and left humanity. It was this. All values, all beliefs, all lifestyles, all claims to truth are what? What? Equal. You say, what? Yeah. Because if there is no creator God, then how can one person say to another person, your values aren't as good as mine? Where's your external reference point? There is none. How can one person say the other? Your lifestyle is not good. It's not as good as mine. How can you say that? Because how can one person judge another person when there is no external reference? That's only your personal opinion, your personal view, your personal feeling. Then out of this came what is called the second greatest value, far greater than what freedom and justice was, is tolerance and multiculturalism. Multiculturalism, like tolerance, has absolutely nothing to do with the color of your skin. I wish people and Christians would get that through their thick skulls. Has nothing to do with your ethnic background or anything. Multiculturalism is tolerance applied to culture, which means all cultural values, all cultural beliefs, all cultural claims to truth, all cultural lifestyles are what? Equal. If you say your cultural value is greater than somebody else, you're a bigot. Why? You made a moral judgment. If there's no external reference points, then each culture values equal. Let me show you what came out of this. Affected truth. For years, truth was considered to be objective, external. You observed truth. Then, through this whole process I just went through, truth became subjective. It's what you think. Do you know where truth is now? Most adults don't know this. Truth now among the younger generation is emotions. It's how you feel. You think I'm wrong on that? George Lucas said to understand the empire, trust your feelings. Michael Wolff wrote the book, Fire and Fury, uh, Critique of the White House. He was interviewed January 8th, 2018 by uh, Katie Turr of MSNBC. And when his book came out, it hit massive criticism. Why? Because he never documented everything. And people that he wrote about said, I never said that. I was in, I was in, in, in that meeting. I was in Europe. I was in Italy. I was uh, not in China, of course. But I was in different places. And so Katie Turr was interviewing him. I think most Americans missed this. I know most Christians did. It went right over their head. Listen carefully to what he said. She said, if people are questioning why not produce the evidence. He said, my evidence is the book. Read the book. If it makes sense to you, if it strikes a chord, if it rings true, it is true. Can you imagine anyone saying that? The implications of that are staggering. Well, Katie Turr didn't get it. Notice her response. I read it. A lot of the stuff did read as, did feel true. 
I called my son about a year and a half ago. He's my intellectual sounding board because he's so smart. And I said, son, you know, your dad's a researcher. And I've concluded the same-sex marriage debate is the first time, now listen carefully to this, folks, you want to understand culture, is the first time historically where feelings trumped science. In about two seconds, he said, Dad, you're right. The same-sex marriage debate has nothing to do with biology, has nothing to do with science, has to do with your emotions. And that's a whole shift that has taken place historically from truth being objective, subjective, to being emotions. And one study showed that 52% of Americans believe or suspect that the only intellectual way to live is to make the best choices you can in every situation based upon your feelings at the moment. Oh my gosh, you'd have anarchy. In Barna Trends, every year he does the trends for that year. In 2018, he said, truth is increasingly regarded as something felt. Folks, we've had a total shift epistemologically. You think I'm wrong on this? Every year, the dictionaries add one new word to the dictionary. You know what they added in 2016? Oh, it's already, no, it's not up there. Good. Post-truth. You know how they define post-truth? Look at that. Relating to or denoting circumstances which objective factors are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That's where we are today in the culture. And that's the only way to understand young people today. And even missions. See, this is true. What I'm talking about is true in every culture of the world, except maybe a small minority that's very isolated. In 95% of all cultures in the world, every missionary you send out faces this. One, because of the internet, it's come, become global. So the first is an epistemological shift, a shift in what truth is and where it comes from. Truth now comes from the individual. 70-some percent of evangelical young people said, truth comes from me. Almost identical to the secular young people all around. The second storm that has hit is a massive data glut. I mean, folks, it's massive. You can't even sit there like I can't sit here and even realize the size of the global internet. Our minds were not created to understand the size of the internet. Let me show you one thing that is done first. In the addiction of technology, the pace of technology, how long does it take for technology to be used by 50 million people. With the radio, it took 38 years for 50 million people to use it. With the telephone, 20 years. With television, 13 years. World Wide Web, four years. Facebook, 3.6 years. Twitter, three years. iPad, two years. Pokemon, 19 days. See, you didn't grow up in a culture like this. Kids are. How big is the internet? Of web pages, there's 14.3 trillion. It takes you 1,200 years to count to a trillion. Number of pages on the internet. To count all the pages in the internet, 
it would take you 2.8 quintillion years just to count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You can't, you can't get your mind around that. I'm trying to find how, how big is the internet? How much does it process? I can actually say nobody knows, even the experts. It, it is multiplying so fast every minute. Nobody knows. But I came to a pretty good guess, all documented, that in every 24 hours, this was 12 months ago, every 24 hours, the global internet processes 1.7 quadrillion gigabytes of data. Now, how big is a gigabyte? A gigabyte is 64,782 eight and a half by 11 pages of data. So you take 64,782 multiply by 17.1.742 quadrillion, it comes out every 24 hours, it processes 1.12 sextillion pages every 24 hours. That's 4.7 sextillion pages every 60 minutes. You can't comprehend that. But you're in competition with all of it. Every pastor, every youth pastor, every author, every speaker, every parent, every grandparent, every teacher is in competition with that. A lot of people say, Dave, because kids only have an eight, eight second span, it's probably down to about six now. They say, well, they're not as smart as you speak. It has nothing to do with it. They're in overload. They're literally in overload. In, 19, in 2019, the global traffic hit two zettabytes. You know how big that is? The two zettabytes equivalent of books would fill 20 billion trucks. One million aircraft carriers it would fill with books of what the internet processes every 12 months. The Washington Post said it would take 11 trillion years to download the entire web right now. 11 trillion! None of you are going to live that long. Hours of video uploaded in 2019 to the web. Just videos uploaded, which, to influence you in competition with you, 720,000 hours every day. <laughs> we can't even cross that number. The average teenager, average, of course your teen is more above average, the average teenager takes in 34 gigabytes of data every 24 hours every day. Do you know what that comes out to? It would come out to 2.2 million pages of data they process every day. They're an overload. This is one reason why it's led to emotions. They don't have enough context to make intelligent decisions because you're an overload. And their very essence, because of what's happened down through history, is that we're operating out of emotions. Then third, and this is the most powerful storm of all of them, this is the storm that Chuck Swindoll said is the greatest cancer in the history of the church. This next storm, every minute is destroying more families, 
more young people, more marriages, more businesses, more churches, more pastors than anything has ever come close to simultaneously in history. Invasive internet, pervasive internet pornography. It's killing us. It's the greatest threat ever, ever to the cause of Christ. And nobody talks about it. Pastors don't talk about it. Hardly any. Churches don't. Parents don't. Pornography, I define it as that which is designated to arouse or sexually excite. For example, the statue of the nude David was not designed as pornography because it wasn't designed to arouse. It was designed to appreciate God's creation. So pornography, that is, was purposely designed to arouse sexually. Now, pastors will say to me and Christians, oh, I hear this. Josh, what's the big deal about, we've always had pornography. What's the big deal? I like to respond, why don't you go out and sell used cars? Of course we've always had pornography. I might be dumb, but I'm not stupid. We've always had pornography. But you're missing the point. We've never had the accessibility of pornography. Nothing compares to it. I just sat down and started to write out why pornography has such an unheard of influence now in the world. This is what I wrote down. It's available, accessible, affordable, anonymous, appealing, aggressive, addictive, accepting, and arousing. All in one. We have never, ever faced anything that even comes close to that in culture, let alone in the church. And hardly anyone talks about it. How big is porn? Nobody knows. It's so big. There's more than 26 million pornographic websites. I was a pornography uploaded just to one site in 2016, 476,000 hours of porn was uploaded to one in 26 million sites. Where in the world do you even get the capacity? One porn site, not the largest either, last year, 4.5 billion hours of porn was viewed on just one of 26 million sites. That's 525 years of content in one year that you could absorb. That's one website. Another porn site, if you just took what they distribute in porn every 30 days and printed out, it would fill 20 billion four-drawer file cabinets. And 6.9, I think it is, billion of those, should say up there, is watched by 6.0, is watched by children. The largest consumer of all this pornography, 12 to 17-year-olds. And I bet you haven't talked to your child or grandchild about porn, have you? 85% of parents never have. (laughs) They're the number one consumers! 90% of 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography. Of course, your child has, and they're exceptional. 80% of 15 to 7-year-olds have had multiple exposures to hardcore material. 90% 90% of all college men, 60, it's actually 69% of all college women have viewed porn before they were 18 years old, and their parents never talked to them about it. It just blows my mind. 
I'm in a room with grandparents sitting around a table and I'll bring up porn. The first comment is this. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this. I don't like to talk about that. I go, oh my gosh, grandma? Because you're uncomfortable, you don't care if your grandchild goes to hell? It just blows my mind. You say, I love my grandchild. And you feel uncomfortable to talk about one of the greatest challenges in their life, one of the number one things that will take them away from Christ, everything, and you uncomfortable to talk about it? It's grandparents, not kids that need therapy. I never said that before. (laughs) (laughs) Write that down for me, will you? No. (laughs) 77% of Christian men visit pornography sites monthly. 56% of Christian women. 70% of all new pornographic sites, which are thousands a week, 70% 70% are for women. Because among women, teenage girls, pornography is exploding. 47% of Christian families report a major problem with pornography. See, so here's some of the challenges of pornography. Alcohol takes six minutes. Think of this, young, young ladies. Alcohol takes six minutes to reach the brain. Cocaine, five minutes. Heroin, 10 to 20 seconds. Nicotine, seven seconds. Porn, a half second. Within a half second... It starts to change your brain. Within 11 minutes, your brain is physically, biologically changed. And this is where parents say, well, I teach my kids, just don't look at it, turn away. It's too late. The moment they see it in a pop-up, you turn away, it's already started to process a change in your brain. That doesn't happen with heroin, cocaine, or anything else. That's why it's so much harder to break addiction to pornography, far harder than heroin, cocaine, alcohol, any other you know one of the reasons why see all other addictions you need more of that substance to maintain the addiction not with porn you just have more you'll probably lead to to depression and suicide with pornography you don't need more you need different if you don't have different becoming more and more and more hardcore you become depressed and suicidal It puts in a whole different category and nobody talks about it. Grandparents don't, parents don't. Here's some of the things that happens. When it releases norepinephrine, it's a memory hormone. They often call it the paperclip hormone because it takes, like pornography, whatever, any experience you have, good, bad, or ugly, it takes and paperclips it to your brain for recall. And it does it instantly. And they say more is released with pornography because it's so novel than any other temptation around a person's life. And then not only that, why do men and women who watch porn make so many irrational decisions? I mean, men will lose their businesses. Men will walk away from a 30-year marriage. Women will make some of the dumbest decisions and young people will. And they never could figure it out. Why did they make so many irrational decisions once they start watching porn? Financially, everything. And about four or five, at the most, six years ago, they learned why. When God created us, he created us marvelously. He created us with the prefrontal cortex. In the prefrontal cortex, this is where God created morality. This is where you, you discern right from wrong. It's in your prefrontal cortex that you make right, righteous decisions. It's here that you can look at long-distance consequences and make an immediate decision, right or wrong. 
But then there's another place that God created. It's in the back of your mind called the limbic system. The limbic system is a seat of pure, raw, now get this where the truth is gone, emotions. You cannot reason there. You make decisions, live everything by raw emotions. This is why, which most young people live out of their limbic system until about 20, 21, 22 years old. When a parent say, how in the world could you have done that? They're living out of their limbic system. Every parent who ever has children ought to understand the limbic system prefrontal cortex because you understand your children. And here's the problem with the limbic system. You can't look at future consequences to make an immediate choice. Wouldn't that be dangerous? You can't say, well, if I drive this fast, I could kill someone. You can't reason that way back. Well, here's the problem they found. That pornographic pictures, especially now with the internet and the moving, the video, and the modeling and all, is that it's so novel. No, our brains were made for novelty. But it's never been made for the novelty of porn. And they've learned this. When porn passes in front of this, the eye images, within a half second, this is incredible. It bypasses your prefrontal cortex where you make right choices, right, wrong, decide. It bypasses that and goes right to your Olympic system. Pure, raw emotions. And now where truth is taking us from objective subject to emotions, that's dangerous in culture. Now, what are some of the results of this? Let me catch up. The number one epidemic in the world today, I would say it's porn, but all the experts put porn number two, loneliness number one. One lady just went, yeah, that's what I did too. Loneliness is the number one in every culture of the world. Because they're not connecting, they're not relating. It's porn, porn, it's the internet, the activity. They're learning to communicate with their thumbs, not their tongues. And that has a tremendous implication on relationships and connecting. I ask a youth pastor who's had about, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred youth groups, uh, director, and I said, what is the greatest epidemic you find among your young people? He just found back, he said loneliness. I said, that is number one. But you know what number two is? I'd put porn up there, but the experts have put this because it's what leads to porn. Loneliness leads to porn, and porn produces. It's a basis. Porn produces loneliness. Loneliness leads to porn. The same way with this next one. Uh, last Sunday, as we tried out this new church next to ours. Just wanted to see what they were like, and it was a good church. It was an evangelical covenant uh, church. And uh, brand new, and so we went there. And beforehand, the youth pastor was there, and he knew who I was. And I said, let me ask you a question. What's the greatest challenge you face with the young people in your youth group? They have about 50 to 60. He said, oh, that's easy, depression. He said, Josh, I think every one of our students, they're depressed. And most of them, almost all of them come from church families. 
Well, pornography produces depression. Depression turns around and leads to pornography. It's incredible. The loneliest members of Gen Z are evenly split between those who use social media and those who don't. It's not just social media. They lack a meaningful relationship or connection and feel isolated from one another. 20% of millennials surveyed said they didn't have one friend. How can you go through life and not make one friend? I thought immediately when you, these two said, she's my best friend. 20% of millennials don't have that? Studies show that one half of Americans say that they are lonely, some are all the time. The health dangers of loneliness. This is what was new to me in research. I didn't know loneliness had such implications on our health. Whew. Health dangers of loneliness, which also marks social isolation a risk factor. Higher rates of morality, a mortality it should be. High blood pressure, illness and injury, smoking, and obesity. Right now, the Department of Health says loneliness is killing as many people as obesity and smoking combined. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't. It's that deadly. And it's been a process over the years. Dr. Barun Sony, University of Southern California, quite a Heady School. He's a student, oh, come on, come on, director of, of uh, spiritual life. He says, when he came to USC 11 years ago, students mostly focused on their quest for meaning and purpose. They were striving to translate values into action, cultivate joy and, and gratitude, and live extraordinary lives. But he said, the last several years, instead of asking, how should I live, students are asking, why should I live? Where they used to talk about hope and meaning, now they grapple with hopelessness and meaninglessness. He says, I'm not alone. He said, all my cohorts in different universities around the country are saying, seeing the same thing. That was, I think, July 14th op-ed in the LA Times. From 2009 to 2017, the rates of depression and emergency room visits for self-harm and suicide thoughts in the age group increased sharply and almost doubled. 91% said they had felt physical or emotional symptoms because of stress, depression, and anxiety. Percentage of teens who say these are a problem among their peers, 96% said anxiety and depression. Mental health. Generation Z, about 8 to 24 years old, from after millennials. Now think of this, folks. In one generation, just one, this usually takes three generations. In one generation, from millennials to Gen Z, the Gen Z on the mental health chart is three 100% higher with mental illness than millennials. I mean, how did that even happen? In one generation. 
technology. Psychologists fear the effects of technology, technological screens are to blame. Now think of this. That's what the studies show. If teenagers who spend three plus hours on social media are more likely to develop mental health problems, including depression, anxiety, aggression, and antisocial behavior. Twice as many heavy users of electronic devices are unhappy, depressed, or distressed than light users. <laughs> that comes from the scientists. Look at what they say about the family. Strong social relationships support mental health. That ties into better immune function, reduced stress, and less cardiovascular activation. Research shows the benefits of a cohesive family during teenage years can significantly lower the level of depression from early teen years. Living in a loving home Having family members who understand and support each other, having fun, trusting each other is extremely important in teenage years, especially for girls. In fact, it's probably the one thing that affects the rest of their lives until they die. So what do we do? You don't do nothing because nothing always leads to something. What do we do? I wish I had another 15 minutes on this. Hmm, I'm doing okay in time. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, the Evangelical Church is being destroyed by porn. They had the courage to make a statement I haven't read from any evangelical. Listen to what the Catholic Church said. This is profound. The effects of pornography on the soul can be deep, and the use of pornography itself can be a sign of emotional wounds. No wound is so deep as to be out of the reach of Christ's redeeming grace. Jeremiah, God said, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I put it this way. Because I, I wasn't into porn, but from six to 13 years of age, for seven years, for seven years, every week, three, four times a week, I was homosexually raped. Just, just about destroyed everything in my life. I guarantee you never met anyone who were more, was more hopeless than I was at 11 years old. And I put it this way, there is nothing too great in my life for God's power to change, nor anything too small or insignificant for his love to be concerned about. Just that thought, God the Holy Spirit used to set me free. And all of a sudden I realized, there's nothing too big for his power or too insignificant for his love. I was set free to trust him with everything in my life. And God brought people into my life and transformed me. I still, I mean, when I went into marriage, I had so much baggage. If I'd married, like a number of men do, a very needy wife, I'd been in trouble. And I'm dead serious. 
If I'd met, if I'd married a dysfunctional woman, oh my gosh, I don't know where I'd be. My wife has changed my life. She's changed my life more than Jesus. Now I know it was Jesus through my wife. But I never knew a woman could love a man as much as Dottie loves me. It's transformed me. They were writing Proverbs now, they call it wisdom according to Dottie. <laughs> that might be the new gospel, all right. Frederick Douglass said, it is, easy, it is easier to build strong children than repair broken men. Wow, what a wise statement. I raised my children this way. I'd rather build a fence at the top of the cliff than place an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. I raised my children proactive. I would say by 10, 11 years old, my children knew more about sex than 90% of all the people graduating from the university that year. Because silence never has helped a young lady or young man to stay pure. Silence has never helped. It's knowledge that helps a child stay pure out of a relationship of mom and dad. Not silence. The biggest thing I hear, well, my children are too young. Oh, get real. I've never been a child too young to start talking about porn. Never. Well, I don't want to give too much too early. The problem is we're giving too little too late. I hurt for young people that go into culture today without a loving, intimate, close, incredible relationship with their daddy who talks to them, reveals to them, interacts with them, listens to them because you got everything in the world against you even if you know Jesus. I wish men would wake up. I'm kind of in the business of picking up the pieces of my ministry. You cannot, like pornography, you can't prevent your child from watching porn. I don't care what you do, mom, dad. Porn is so big, so prevalent, your child will see porn. And the issue is not keeping your child from seeing porn. I think you ought to do everything you can. But the real issue is to prepare your child for the first time they see it. And that better be about five years old. Because globally, the average now is eight years old. I believe in pastors' families, it's four to six years old. When they become addicted to porn, start watching it. And nobody talks to them. Grandma feels uncomfortable. Grandpa doesn't feel it's his job. He never trained his kids to do it. So I've got to wrap it up here. One is family. If we do not help husbands to be husbands and wives to be wives, mom and dad to be parents, I don't care what we preach. I don't care how many books you read or anything else, you'll fail. It comes down to relationships starting in the family. Every study shows that. Pastor, I would like to get to you. I can do it in a couple days. It'll be an email with about 14 pages. I'll pay for it if you could print it out and next Sunday give it to every person, one to a family. It's seven incredible principles on how do you connect. 
How do you build relationships that leads to response? Doesn't matter if you're a businessman with your employers, a teacher with your students, or mom and dad with your kids, grandma and grandpa with your grand, it doesn't matter. There are incredible biblical principles and relationships. <laughs> I get chills thinking about it. And I'll send it on to you. And the nice thing about what I'm gonna send you, you have my wife's comments about each step. And women look at it different men, thank God. But put it this way. Rules without connection leads to rebellion, period. Kids don't respond to rules. They respond to rules in the context of a loving, intimate, close relationship. That's what they respond to. When so many parents are yelling at their kids, they ought to be yelling at them themselves. Put it this way. Truth without connection leads to rejection. Talking about the internet with your kids without connection leads to rejection. Talking with porn with your children, your grandkids without a connection leads to rejection. Folks, it leads to rejection. Bill Clinton, Governor Clinton said, or President Clinton, whichever, said, it's the economy, stupid, it's the economy. I say, it's the connection, dot, dot, dot. It's the connection. You can fill in the dots. Second, truth. We have got to present truth in a little different way today in this culture of emotion. I'll say to you young people, the three or four of you that are here, learn truth. <laughs> I was at, I was speaking at the National Apologetics Conference and when I finished speaking, I went down like this and I had to get out to get to the airport. And this college student was in the back, ran forward in front of about 2,000 people yelling out, Dr. McDowell, Dr. McDowell, wait a minute. He came down to me. And he was a college student. He walked up to me and he says, why does truth even matter? And I said, well, young man, do you want the real answer or the false answer? You don't get it? He didn't. He didn't get it. Every time you turn on your GPS, young people, you want the true route. You don't want the false route. Every time the doctor describes your condition from the blood test, do you want a false counting of it? I just had that done yesterday. No, I wanted the true. Afterwards, I wish I'd had the false, but I wanted the true. <laughs> you can't live without truth. And how, why does truth even matter? Oh my gosh. Just live by your emotions and we'll have anarchy. What should I believe? Why should I believe it? And how do I experience that? There's three questions you all be asking yourself. My time is up. I wrote this book right here with my son because one generation couldn't have written this. Unshakable Truth. How you can experience the 12 essentials of a relevant faith. And we had to go back to 130 A.D. to just tomorrow to find the answer for teaching truth today in an emotional-related truth culture. Here are the four steps. It's all outlined in there. But the amazing thing is, is how we got, how history got to this four steps. And I'm going to just go through them. You can get the book and get the whole thing. One, about any truth you study, God, 
What do you need to know about God to become a true disciple? Well, God is holy, God is just, God is right. Yeah, but the first thing God revealed is God is creator God. In the beginning, God created. Why is that so important? Significance and meaning, creator God. Second question, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? Apologetics. Third, this is a brilliant one. This to me is the most profound question I've ever seen anyone ask. First, what do you need to know about this subject? Second, how do you know it's true? Third, so what? So what? So God is God. So God's a creator, God, a loving God. How does that relate to me? So what? 80-some percent of Christian millennials, evangelical millennials said, they didn't know how their faith relates to their job. <laughs> Pastor, that's probably the worst statistic I ever heard. How does my faith even relate to what I do? The question is, so what? Third, how can I experience Fourth, how can I experience it? In my own life, in my relationship with the Heavenly Father, in my relationship with others, called community. What do I need to know? How do you know it's true? So what? And how can I experience That's the basis of this whole book, going back 1,900 years to come up with those four questions. Folks, please, I beg you, take heart to what I've shared here. Because if we understand where we've been, we'll understand more, not only where we need to go, but how to get there. And whoever wisely came up with connect is incredible. <clears throat> the only stronger word than connect is relationship. And that's what even secular research is going to. We've lost connection, we've lost relationship because we're living with our thumbs and not with our tongues. Out there are some books, there's this book here which one church got it, the pastor read it and they had four pastors, so they divided up the 12 truths in here and each pastor for one Sunday taught that truth and he went through the four steps. Wow! I said, what happened you got to Easter? We did Easter. What happened you came to Christmas? We did the incarnation. And then the book, the beauty of intolerance. I would never teach my children to be tolerant, it's evil. I taught my children to be loving. That enhances one's value. I thank God that Mother Teresa was not tolerant of poverty. You think of that next time you tell someone to be tolerant. I thank God that Nelson, what was his last name? Mandela, yeah, you know it was not tolerant of apartheid. I thank God that Martin Luther King was not tolerant of racism. I thank God that Jesus wasn't tolerant of bigotry. When you tolerate someone, you diminish their value. When you love someone, you enhance their value. And then the book, oh God, ways of time. It's brand new in the sense that it's 80% new. There's so much new evidence. I wrote this to make a joke of Christianity, became a Christian, spent 13 years documenting why. And it was just rated as one of the 40 most influential books of the 20th century, which I'm thankful for, because it means it's influencing people and getting them into scripture. Thank you for today. I've gone over a little, but uh, I don't apologize. Thank you. <laughs>
God bless. Thank you, Josh. We appreciate uh, your ministry, and um, not very often do you get to thank somebody who's written as many books and uh, spoken many places uh, to be in your presence, and just able to thank him. I, I was thinking about the books that um, have influenced me that I've read of his. I hadn't read all 150, however many, but um, <clears throat> evidence that demands a verdict. I'll start there, because that's where I started, and uh, just to see how the Lord changed his life. Um, a tremendous book. I encourage you, if you hadn't read it, to read it. When I was in New York State, I read the second book of Josh's, uh, Right from Wrong. I remember it came out when I was doing youth ministry up in New York, and uh, I taught... Oh. <laughs> the second one I read. Um, it uh, really helped when I had uh, that youth ministry. We actually went through the book had a study guide with us that we went through. And then the last book that I read of Josh's, The Last Generation, uh, just talks about the issue of tolerance and how tolerance has impacted the church today. Um, so I encourage you to visit the table as you leave today. And if you've been visiting with us this morning, we really are glad you're able to be here. We had a good first service as well. And uh, a lot of folks uh, showed up, and we really appreciate the effort that uh, the team, the missions team is... Uh, made to put this conference together for us, and um, so we just want to thank everybody for that. Um, I wanted to read some scripture uh, to kind of encourage us, because you may be in a situation where you feel kind of uh, uh, defeated. Maybe some of these things are hitting you this morning, you're like, man, I don't know what to do, I don't know where to go. Um, well, the Word of God gives us some direction in that, and I want to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, so I'd like you to stand as I read this, and then I will close with a word of prayer. The Apostle Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your eternal word. We thank you that we have um, so many copies of it. There's no excuse for us not to be in it. Um, it is our protection against the schemes of the devil. As we know, he roars like a lion seeking to devour and I pray that we would be plugged in to the power source, which is the word, to prayer, to honest communication with you, Lord, about things that we struggle with, um, things that we need help with. And I pray that we would be observant Christians as we um, raise our children, as we interact with our grandchildren, give us wisdom, give us discernment, as we're able to talk about these very issues with which Josh spoke today. I pray for his ministry, Lord. He was telling me this morning he's got 268 more stops this year. That's a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of travel. I thank you for the influence that he's able to have in the lives of so many people. I thank you that he stands on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray you'd bless his ministry. I thank you for uh, just him being available to be with us this weekend. I pray for safety as we leave. All this I pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.